Welcome to the latest episode of Matinees on Main Street, the podcast of the history of the movies from the beginning. In this ongoing story, we're approaching the end of the 19th century and we're starting to meet a new kind of people interested in the early moving picture business. These people are different from the first group who helped invent the machines that made and showed the movies. Those first people included Thomas Edison, the Lumieres, Laurie Dixon, Robert Paul, Etienne Jules Murray, Thomas Armat, Charles Jenkins, and others, such as the Skladnowski brothers, and even Auguste Le Prince. Some of these people succeeded, others did not. But during this time that we're now reflecting upon, which is the very last few years of the 19th century, the number of projectors that have been dispensed throughout America and Europe were reaching a point where the demand for new movies was not being met. In the last podcast, I pointed out that some of these companies, such as Edison's, were providing a number of films, although it's hard to tell whether these films were enough to meet the growing demand. I've not read any complaints about what was being offered at that time, although there does seem to be a bit of repetition in what was being shown. But for the first time, there was a small group of people who thought that they could make money not from selling movie machines, but from selling movie shorts themselves. Historian Terry Ramsey calls this new group businessmen. And I think that's fair, although I think that, strictly speaking, this new group was not quite businessmen, but fits somewhere in between the real money makers of movies, who are coming up later, and the earlier people making money from selling the machines. It's really hard to find a definition or word to define who they all are, as each is different in his or her own way. Two of them were magicians, one being Georges Méliès and the other being Albert Smith. Smith's partner, James Stuart Blackton, was a newspaper cartoonist with a vaudeville quick sketch act on the side. All three were stage performers of some type. Leon Gamont ran a photographic supply company as well as a manufacturing facility, and it was his secretary, Alice Gee, who was the one who showed a real interest in making movies. Sigmund Lubin. At the beginning, Lubin had marketed a camera devised by Charles Francis Jenkins, but it was simply a tweaked version of the same camera his former partner, Thomas Armat, had sold to Thomas Edison. Lubin soon decided that movies were much more profitable than machines. What all of these different people had in common was a willingness to experiment with film in a way that the earlier people who made the machines didn't want to do. Some saw them as an opportunity to make money, Others saw it as an innovative way to experiment with the popular arts. Maybe I could just call them all as experimenters and leave it at that. I've already discussed Milliez, and I'll be talking about Gamont and Guy in a few episodes. Lubin will have to wait. 
So today, I'll be discussing Albert Smith and James Stuart Blackton. Like Lubin, these two men were interested in finding ways to make money while also entertaining an audience. Both of them would end up very well off, but even at the beginning, that itch for wealth was there. J. Stuart Blackton is usually the one that gets mentioned first. That may simply be due to his charm and visibility. It may be also due to his work as a film director and producer, while Albert Smith preferred to be the man who handled the management and financial details of the company. Despite being known as J. Stewart, it seems that most people referred to him as James. Apparently, only Al referred to him as Jim to his face, but a number of trade press writers of that time, as well as Terry Bramsey, occasionally referred to him as Jimmy. Blackton was from Sheffield, England, a major Yorkshire city with strong industrial ties. When he was ten, which was years after the ugly divorce between his Scottish mother and his criminally violent English father, James and his mother, Jessie, emigrated to the United States, where they settled in New York. It's been suggested that since they quickly settled into an expat British neighborhood in Brooklyn, that their immigration may have been arranged ahead of time. Albert Smith, on the other hand, came from the extreme southeast of England. His hometown of Faversham was close to the Channel, Dover, Margate, and Canterbury. He lived more of his youth in England than had Blackton, and when his family moved to America, it was partially due to his grandmother's asthma. The Smith family settled in a different neighborhood of Brooklyn than had the Blacktons. James Blackton seems to have been a garrulous, outgoing boy who had a decent set of artistic skills and a bit of a passion for performing in front of a crowd. In New York, his mother remarried and gave birth to a much younger brother to James. But when his stepfather died, James started to work for a living. This was at the age of 17. As James Blackton had hoped to become an artist, his mother had suggested that he learn some basic trade skills as backup. That trade proved to be carpentry. His father's family had been making saws for generation, and his mother believed that a trained carpenter could use those family skills to make frames for stretched canvases as well as for frame making. While he helped out with the family finances, he also started taking art courses at one of the New York City colleges. Now, Albert Smith's time in New York seems to have been much less eventful. He did apprentice as a bookbinder, and he did show a gift for manual dexterity. He had an interest in mechanics as well as the manual manipulation of magic. Add to that an attraction to vaudeville and a desire to hear the applause of audiences as he performed on imaginary stages, and you could see where the rather quiet Smith was headed. Smith started practicing his magic skills with a friend named Ronald Reeder. Reeder was another Brit, although he had traveled to the United States alone and at a later age than either Smith or Blackton. He eventually befriended both young men, friendships that brought Smith and Blackton together. And as a trio of wannabe vaudevillians, 
they encouraged each other in their passions. Both Smith and Blackton wanted out of their trade professions, with dreams of the vaudeville stage in their eyes. Reader, on the other hand, held a better job, working at an insurance company, so his drive towards a career in vaudeville proved to be less committed. With practice, the three men established themselves as a performance act, known by the rather pretentious name of the International Novelty Company. They got their feet wet by performing for private groups outside of New York City. At the time, Brooklyn was one of the largest cities in America, but was thought of more as a bedroom community of Manhattan. Queens was still on the rural side, and the Bronx was even more so. It was in these neighborhoods that the boys picked up their first gigs, along with Harlem, which was still rather Dutch at the time, and even north into Yonkers, New Rochelle, and White Plains. They would put on shows that were a combination of magic, ventriloquism, vocal impression of animals, magic lantern projections, quick drawings, and even poetic recitations. That was the plan at least until their vision of public entertainment bombed at a birthday party in Harlem. It looks as if one problem was that Smith seems to have had more stage time during the show than did Blackton or Reeder, although he was the most introverted of the three. Blackton seems to have had a decent spiel going along with his sketch routine, but Smith seemed to rely too much on his magic and not enough on his public persona. Back in Brooklyn, Smith decided to improve the presentation of his magic show by presenting more personality. He and Reader also started developing a mind-reading act. Blackton, who already had the best presentation of the three, switched from executing his sketches in chalk on a blackboard to using charcoal pencils on large sheets of paper. This allowed him to sell the sketches he made. They also changed their names to something a bit more professional, the Royal Entertainers. I assume the royal part had something to do with the fact that all three were British. For several months, they continued to perform in the area, but everything seemed to change, or at least gave the impression that it did, when they were in the south of Manhattan and stumbled across a kinetoscope parlor. It had been suggested that the parlor was on Nassau Street, which means it was probably the parlor run by the Lathams. Nassau Street was also where Blackton bought his glass slides at a company called McAllister's. Unfortunately, the three young men didn't have enough money to buy into this idea of the kinetoscope, however it came to them. They battled on working their day jobs in carpentry and bookbinding, Reader seems to have become more involved in the insurance company and soon dropped out. His white-collar career held more promise of advancement than did the jobs held by Smith and Blackton, so his interest in the whole scheme started to wane. On the other hand, Blackton and Smith continued to dream of a career in vaudeville. It's not known if they had seen the Edison projection movies when they finally appeared at Coster and Biles, or had witnessed the Lumiere films once they appeared in New York in the summer of 1896. News of those demonstrations were hard to miss if you were interested in the entertainment business, 
but the two brothers never mentioned any of that in their interviews they gave or the memoirs they wrote. Instead, what was mentioned was the sick baby fund. Charity drives for children are still well known, but these days they're usually for children with conditions that cost a lot of money to care for. In the late 1800s, most people had to pay out of their pocket for the health of their children, and many of the poor had a terrible time dealing with that issue. At that time, there definitely was a line between those who could tend for their children and those who could not, and that line was definitely an economic one. In 1889, Joseph Pulitzer's New York Evening World newspaper started a charity drive to raise funds for the sick children of the poor. It was known as the Sick Babies Fund. This was not a fund for catastrophic illnesses. The fund paid for doctors to visit tenement families that could not afford doctors, and over the next several years the fund would be expanded to include niceties, such as children cruises, up the Hudson, and into the New York Harbor, simply to get them away from the fetid, stinking air of New York City. It was obvious to some of those who did not live among New York's poorest that these children did not get enough healthy food to eat, enough clean water to drink, or even enough clean air. For the New York Evening World, the heart of the fund was the letters that were written to the newspaper. These were usually from people who helped provide charity to some poor family in the form of health care or food. The poverty was shocking, and it was wonderful that so many people gave, so much so that each year the world expanded its involvement with the fund as more and more letters were published along with notes that accompanied each contribution. At the same time, benefit shows and concerts were held in local theaters. But by 1896, the world was having problems. The year before, the young renegade newspaper owner, William Randolph Hearst, bought a struggling New York newspaper, The Journal, and started to make a big dent in Pulitzer's world circulation in the New York area. Even more troublesome was the fund itself. While some of the letters were sounding a little self-satisfied in their treatment of the poor, a more concerning problem was the growing number of small-time scam artists who said they were collecting for the fund. In many cases, they were simply small children looking to make easy money and then spend it. Three well-off young girls were found to have spent their money on food, drink, rides on trolleys and ferry boats. These were not poor children, but rather unsupervised children from better-off families. It was said that you couldn't go down into Manhattan without seeing young girls begging for the World's Sick Babies Fund. These girls would soon be investigated by the Jerry's. Those were the workers for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. That year, the world continued to take contributions and forward them to the Sick Babies Fund, but it no longer published letters or acknowledged those who contributed in the newspaper. In fact, anything published about the Sick Babies Fund was pawned off on the world's sister paper, the Brooklyn Eagle, while the world focused on benefit shows. These didn't seem to be massive gala performances, but instead featured just a few performers and included acts such as Herman the Great, who was another famous French magician 
whose specialty was the bullet catch. The show was a success, but he would die towards the end of the year from a heart attack. Another performer was Titania. She was a toe dancer, an unaffiliated ballerina who chose to perform modern dance in ballet slippers. But her real specialty was the jewelry she wore during her performances. Both Herman and Titania gave benefit performances for the Sick Babies Fund, and at some point that summer, so did James Stewart Blackton. This may be a good time to talk about the founders of the movies and their accuracy. To make it simple, you can't trust any of them in the stories they tell. First of all, nearly everyone gets their dates wrong, and that's not just the movie moguls. Unless you're a diarist of some kind, you're going to have a hard time trying to remember what happened when, especially when it happened 20 years ago. And when you're concerned with people who are important to the development of a story, that can be a real problem. Another problem that developers have is a tendency to mythologize themselves and their stories. Luck and fate can enter into a story when it shouldn't, and sometimes they credit themselves when it should belong to someone else. Some of the pioneers left no record. A few outright lied. Some of them spun stories to cover their asses during government investigations. Others did so in order to win lawsuits. And frankly, these were people who didn't think about their past until long after their glory years were over. By then, what came when was lost in the fog of their historical memory. Right now, we're talking about Albert Smith and James Stewart Blackton. And frankly, they're among the greatest of the mythologizers in the early film. Blackton, in particular, was much less interested in getting the facts right than he was in the story, and he was perfectly willing to destroy factual integrity in the name of improving a tale, and that also goes for the history of Vitagraph. Both Blackton and Smith wrote bios that can't be trusted, Thankfully, a number of film history researchers have scoured old newspapers, the Internet, and personal records, and kind of pieced the puzzle together. First of all, Blackton's version ignored the Sick Babies Fund. He usually claimed that he had been sent by his employer, the New York Evening World, to interview Thomas Edison concerning his movie projector. During the interview, Blackton mentioned that as a quick sketch artist, he could draw Edison's portrait very quickly, and did so. This led to Edison suggesting that Blackton come to the Black Mariah and they would make a film of him executing a few quick sketches, including the Edison sketch. During this Black Mariah performance, Blackton was so amazed by the way the vitascope worked that he offered to buy one. Edison turned down the offer, but did suggest that at the end of the year, a new improved projector would be available and that he'd put Blackton's name down for one of those. This story started to appear late in the silent era. But in a 1924 article in Pictures and Picturegoers magazine, the magazine suggests that Blackton's interview with Edison was for the earlier kinetoscope, and that motivated the two men to later invest in a movie projector. But even more troublesome is I can't find any interviews given by Edison for the Evening World newspaper. 
If Blackton did meet with Edison for the evening world, it probably was simply to validate some fact or to get his opinion on a current topic. Did reporters fact-check by telephone at that time? At least a few historians even questioned the world sending Blackton out to talk to Edison. So what was the truth? I don't know. Actually, Blackton's career goal had always been more towards the arts than towards reporting facts. But with his stage act, he now found the same thrills by performing on stage. Not only could he continue to draw, he enjoyed the banter with the crowds and the praise he got for his work. His job at the world was not full-time. He was working as a freelancer. But during 1896, he did turn out a number of drawings for the newspaper that got published. More than likely, as he was gregarious and willing to promote the group's vaudeville act, people at the world may have heard him talk about the royal entertainers. The Evening World's Sick Babies Fund was entering its eighth year, and everyone knew they used vaudeville performers in the benefits for the fund. It's more likely that either Blackton volunteered his act to the people at the world who arranged these shows, or they asked him to perform. Regardless, the Royal Entertainment Group appeared at the New Brunswick Hotel Casino in Asbury Park, New Jersey, to entertain a fundraising crowd on June 26, 1896. This is where things get even more puzzling. I guess the big question is, why was Blackton filmed in the first place? According to his story, it was because of his marvelous quick drawing skills, as well as his banter with Edison, but historian Charles Musser believes that the world was already sticking its nose in the movie business, as the newspaper had been responsible for Dixon filming May Irwin and Johnny Rice in The Kiss. He thinks that the newspaper may have been the force behind bringing Blackton and Edison together. Another angle is that Blackton himself was interested in the process and may have also suggested that an Edison camera film his group at the affair, although, in a way, that seems a bit nervy. What is known is that the Edison camera, run by James White, did make a few films of the Sick Baby's Fun Drive, showing little kids swinging and riding on hobby horses. They also filmed three different movie shorts showing Blackton doing sketches. One was a political sketch of McKinley, another of a female figure, and a third showing Blackton sketching an image of Edison. The only film that I've seen is the Edison sketch, and it was probably the most popular. I've seen references to Blackton using Edison as a model, although if he did, he was off camera. In the film, New York World cartoonist sketches Thomas Edison, I don't see Blackton looking out to observe anyone, whether they were off camera or near him. If Edison was there, Blackton seemed to be able to draw him without observing him. But having done that kind of thing myself, I find it remarkable that Blackton could remember what Edison looked like to that degree. It leads me to believe that he had sketched Edison a few times before the filming and was able to do so without looking at him. That kind of thing helps, but that's just my opinion. This also leaves me with two other thoughts. 
The first is whether Edison was even there when Blackton was filmed. Some sources suggest that he wasn't. The second is that it really does look as if he was filmed in the Black Mariah. Some sources suggest that the filming was actually done at the Sick Babies Fun performance. I don't know. Throughout 1897, the royal entertainers continued to work, although it seems that Reader was now out of the picture. At the same time, a growing market in duplicated films, what we now call pirated films, was exploding, and Edison was setting out to conquer it. As for the royal entertainers, they had moved into vaudeville, and as Blackton was no longer published by the New York Evening World, you can assume that both he and Smith were now making enough money from their act to support themselves. In February of 1897, the Edison Company released their new projector, the Projecting Kinetoscope. Thanks to the influence of the Lumieres and others, Edison, James White, and Charles Heiss also managed to simplify, compartmentalize, and reduce the bulk of their first camera. The Projecting Kinetoscope was now on sale for $100. A movie camera was still not for sale legally in America. This meant that anyone who spent $100 on a projecting kinetoscope also had to buy the films he would project through Edison. This arrangement was not any different than the one that the phonograph companies offered. No one showed any interest in the recording abilities of the phonograph machine, so interest in the recording cylinders just died until independent recording companies started to record music on cylinders and sell them. Edison had battled the indie recording companies, and he would soon be moving into a battle over the movies. As for Blackton and Smith, they bought an early projector and started to show movies in their act. The one film they mentioned showing was the Black Diamond Express. It seems that Blackton bantered through the film. This was not uncommon in the days before the feature film. At that time, there was a big market for movies among lecturers, some of whom could be quite glib and humorous, just like Blackton. Charles Musser also believes that the royal entertainers would have shown the Blackton quick sketch films. It's also at this time that one of the most reliable forms of American business discovered the movies, when advertising saw the benefits of the moving pictures. Magic lantern operators and lecturers had been using glass slides to promote businesses, so the members of the Royal Entertainers incorporated themselves into the Commercial Advertising Bureau and started to sell advertising space. They set up an office and started to solicit local businesses for the opportunity to advertise their companies in shows, as well as in some sort of primitive street projections. Apparently, this business was established as a side moneymaker during vaudeville's downtime in the summer, as well as during the vaudeville routines. This was also a sign that the two men were becoming more entranced by the act of making moving images than they were with performing on stage. All of this commercialization went out the window when America went to war against Spain. The royal entertainers were part performers, but also part exhibitors. The war replaced actualities, comedies, and commercials, 
as the flavor of the month in moving images at the local vaudeville houses. The war broke out in April, and Edison had moving images of the war available by June. At this time, Blackton and Smith bought a second Edison projector and adapted it into a moving picture camera. With it, they were able to make their own war films, and everything changed for them. I'll go into their war efforts when I get to the Spanish-American War. That'll be in a few months. For now, I'll just say that their film company, which was called Vitagraph, would turn out to be the most successful and longest-lasting of America's early film companies. Warner Brothers would buy them out in 1925, and their name would continue once Harry, Abe, Albert, and Jack Warner introduced sound to the movies in the late 1920s. So thank you for listening. 